Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Ida Vok in Berlin. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. It's Friday the 12th of March. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, I'm back from my leave and Emily is away on leave this week. And so we're in an unusual situation where we're both hosting this podcast from the same place. So I suppose I might as well ask you, Ido, how are things here in Berlin? <laughs> well, last, last week I spoke about the um, two upcoming state elections that I believe you've written your column on this week. Indeed. But you seem convinced that they might shape how the CDU candidate for chancellor works out. So perhaps you might want to speak a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so we're recording this on Friday the 12th. On Sunday the 14th, there's going to be state elections in Rhineland-Pfalz and Baden-Württemberg, which are two of Germany's 16 states, and also two states that used to be really dominated by Angela Merkel's CDU, but are no longer governed by it. So Baden-Württemberg is now led by the Green Party and Rheinland-Pfalz is now led by the Social Democrat SPD. And it's going to be a test for the new CDU leader, Armin Laschet, who, as long-time listeners will know, was elected in January as the new leader of the CDU and is assumed to be the party's chancellor candidate for the election in September. But it's open as to whether he will actually fulfill that role or whether the party will turn to Marcus Söder, who's currently the Prime Minister of Bavaria, to be its candidate for the chancellery in September. So a lot of open questions in German politics and subscribers to the New Statesman World Review newsletter will also get my views on what the regional elections will mean this Sunday and how to read their results. So do subscribe if you don't already, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. And also watch out for our kind of take on what those results mean on Monday morning. So we'll be covering that. And I think it could be an, an interesting moment because, you know, we, we all assume, we've, we have all long assumed that Merkel's CDU will lead the next German government. 
but the party's not in a great way at the moment. You know, the vaccines are being only slowly given out in Germany and the party's been caught up in various corruption scandals and the state elections this Sunday may not turn out very well for it. And so it might be that we need to kind of rethink our view of German politics. So lots to watch there. With that, let's go on to our moments of the week. Ido, what's been your moment from the past week that you think is most significant? My moment of the week is that Brazil's former president, Lula, had his conviction, which had stripped him of political rights and the right to run for office, quashed by the Supreme Court. So Lula had been unable to run in the 2018 presidential election, which was eventually run by Jair Bolsonaro because of this conviction. And so the ruling leaves open the possibility that Lula could run again against Bolsonaro in 2022, which obviously would present a significant challenge to Bolsonaro's kind of style of hard right politics. And and many people see Lula as the most credible candidate to defeat Bolsonaro in 2022, And so this ruling opens up the possibility that he will be able to do so. And what is your moment of the week? For me, it has to be Joe Biden. Yesterday, as we record this, Joe Biden signed into law a $1.9 trillion stimulus package to revive the American economy after the shock caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I have to say, you know, we've often discussed on this podcast, especially with Emily, and I will defer to her judgment on this when she comes back. But we've often discussed whether or not Joe Biden can actually put into practice the progressive ideals of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And while there are a lot of people who have, I think, valid doubts about that, this has been a a definite positive, you know, this is this is a big Keynesian stimulus along the lines of which the American left has been pushing for for a long time. You know, it involves direct payments to Americans earning under $75,000 of $1,400 straight up. And I think that that could make a big difference to the US economy. You know, it's a big burst of demand. And it's actually controversial among some economists, you know, in the US and in Europe who say that it's kind of it risks driving inflation up. But I think it shows that Biden is a more complicated figure than the democratic centrist that many people kind of wrote him off as when he was elected. So it's a fascinating development. It's a good development for the American economy and for the world economy. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that develops. So I'll be watching watching that as it were. But I think it's a big, a big moment. And so with that, I think it's time to introduce our guest. And we're really, really pleased to be joined by our own New Statesman colleague, Alona Ferber, who is the special projects editor at the New Statesman. She is British Israeli, previously worked at the great Israeli newspaper Haaretz. And we've invited her on the podcast this week to talk about the upcoming Israeli election on March the 23rd but also to talk about the fact that Israel is far ahead of anyone else, you know, whether the, you're talking about the UK or the US or the EU when it comes to vaccines. And so really good to have Elona join us to talk about the election and also the, the vaccine story. So Elona, thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. I think to start off, because there's an election coming and because Israeli politics is really hard to follow, if, even if, like I am, you're interested in Israeli politics. So I think... For, for a start, Alona, could you just talk us through kind of what is the current situation in Israeli politics? We all know that Benjamin Netanyahu is the prime minister, that this is now the fourth election in the last two years. 
But can you just paint us a picture of what the political landscape looks like? Sure. So Netanyahu, as you said, is the prime minister. He's the country's longest serving prime minister. He's had two, you know, five terms in office, four of those concurrently since 2009. His first term ended a decade before that in 1999. The country has a very complex, divided and yes, kind of a difficult to follow political scene with a proportional representation system. There's a lot of horse trading and wrangling to build coalitions after an election, hence the record-breaking four elections in two years. And to give you an idea, originally, the original list of parties registered to contest this election was around 39 parties in a country of kind of 8 million people. A lot of them have dropped out since but it kind of gives you an idea of kind of how how divided and complex that scene is. There are broadly kind of two blocks on that, that political scene. There's a right wing religious block, which is mostly kind of pro-BB until until recently, where some right wing parties have come out as kind of con, you know anti-BB contenders. And also the center left, which is basically anti-BB. So it is a really, really complicated one. And the, the elections that are coming up now follow three elections, uh, one in April 2019, one in September 2019, and one in March 2020. And all three of them basically yielded an impasse. If you if you want to build a coalition, you need as a candidate to get 61 recommendations from members of Knesset to the, pre- the president, President Rovon Rivlin, inviting you to form a coalition. And in none of those cases was anybody really able to kind of follow that through for all sorts of reasons. And what ended up happening in the most recent election in uh, March 2020 was that um, Netanyahu, even though he didn't actually get the, the backing of those 61 lawmakers, he ended up managing to get his rival Benny Gantz into coalition with him. The country's kind of been going through this sort of Groundhog Day election now for two years where neither of the blocs are quite delivering a majority and it's really, really complicated to get agreement to form a coalition. Okay, so I have two questions on the back of that. The first is, first of all, what brought down the existing alliance between Netanyahu and Benny Gantz and mm-hmm. his party? Talk us through the relationship between Gantz and Netanyahu and, and how that, that kind of came about and how it broke down. Sure. So G- Gantz is really, really interesting. I mean, he he was chief of staff of the Israeli army. He entered politics in that first election in April 2019 with a completely new kind of political project, blue and white, the Israeli flag is blue and white. So the hint, you know, it's kind of very clear nod to kind of, you know, we're a Zionist, you know, Israeli nationalist party, patriotic. And he managed to build this movement over three elections where he won, you know, upwards of 30 seats, which is really, really impressive. He joined forces with Yeshatid, which is a centrist party founded by Yair Lapid, which is now polling the second highest after Likud in, in this election. He joined with another party called Telem, which was led by a former member of uh, Likud, uh, Moshe Alon, who also kind of moved away from Netanyahu. And Gantz ran and his partners ran on this, you know, we, we will get rid of Netanyahu ticket. Netanyahu, as you know, is on trial on three separate charges of corruption. His, his, the evidence part of his trial is actually starting on the 5th of April. And, and there'll be three sessions a week on that trial. So it's quite, you know, quite a heavy load for somebody facing those charges. And they, they ran on, on that ticket all the way through those elections, winning those kind of upwards of 30 seats. And ultimately, what ended up happening in the, in the March 2020 elections is that Gantz took a decision to enter coalition 
with Bibi. His party split apart and Lapid and Yalon weren't willing to do that and betray the base because the, the main message from Gantz for those voters was, if you vote for me, you, we will get rid of Netanyahu. But, but Gantz basically said, you know, the coronavirus has happened. There's a national crisis. My voters want unity. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going into this coalition. And what ended up happening was that they put together, a, you know, a coalition deal where Bibi and him were meant to rotate. So he was an alternative prime minister. And after 18 months, which would be, I think, in November this year, he would become prime minister. But what happened when they were in coalition together is that Bibi basically, you know, did what everybody warned Gantz that he would do, which was engage in lots of bad faith politics, not kind of involve him in decision making, sideline him. There were a lot of examples, for example, that the normalization deals with countries like UAE, Bahrain, where Gantz and his foreign minister, Gantz was the defense minister, and his foreign minister. These um, were the deals brokered by the uh, Trump administration. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Bibi kind of didn't involve Gantz and his party in, in those discussions, even though he had the kind of foreign and defense ministry. So there are all sorts of examples like this, where basically there was a lot of bad faith not involving him in decisions. And ultimately, what ended up happening, I mean, a, long, a, a story alongside all of this is that Israel hasn't had a kind of formal past national budget for a long time, because there's, it's been under interim government for such a long time because of these elections. The government missed the budget deadline in August, postponed it to December. And then if it missed the deadline again, there would be elections. And it missed that deadline, which was what pushed it to elections. But even before then, there was a bill to dissolve parliament going through in December. And Gantz made a a speech, I think, in December, basically saying, I will support this bill to dissolve parliament because Bibi is a liar. You can't, you know, you can't trust him. We need to unite against him to get rid of him. And now the tragedy of Gantz, of course, is he's polling from those 30 seats on four seats. You know, it's not clear if he's going to pass the electoral threshold. His is a kind of, you know, personal tragedy. And his voters, you know, have moved elsewhere because they're quite angry with him for betraying that, you know, very central promise. The the second question was whether or not it's really fair to call Gantz a centre-left politician. Seen seen from kind of beyond Israel, the, the whole question is obviously kind of, you know, is there a force in Israeli politics that we could really relate to that pushes really for a two-state solution and really stands by human rights and so forth? Because obviously the Israeli government, and particularly because of its relations with the Trump administration, has put, mm-hmm. put off a lot of foreign observers who might otherwise have automatically supported the Israeli government. So what does the Israeli left look like at the moment? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's particularly timely because also, you know, the traditional Israeli left, a party of the Israeli left, the Zionist left, the Labour Party has a new leader, a feminist called Merav Michaeli, who's really interesting. But I want to first of all, just clarify that it's not that, so the centre-left bloc isn't necessarily a bloc of centre-left parties, a bloc of parties that are on the centre and the left. And blue and white was kind of on the center right more than the center left, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So they would be classified as center right. And I guess center in Israeli politics is a, is a really interesting kind of concept also because it has nothing to do with economics, for example. You know, everybody's kind of this in the same place when it comes to the economy, kind of broadly a free market economy behind a kind of capitalist system, I would say. But uh, when it comes to issues like you pointed out, you know, human rights or, or, you know, relationship with the Palestinians, the conflict, that's where kind of left and right comes into it. Basically, you know, Gantz 
yeah, and yes, Hatid defines itself very much as a centre party, not a centre right party, particularly. And the Labour Party would define itself as a party of the left. So, yeah, centre in Israeli politics is complicated. But I think at the moment, the Israeli left is basically you've got Labour on six seats, Meretz, which is a, a party slightly further on the left and smaller, is, is probably passing the, left, the electoral threshold with four. And in 2015, you know, Labour won two, 24 seats in the election. That's a big drop from that 24 to six. And so Labour has a lot of soul searching to do. And it's kind of trying to work out the parties of the left are trying to understand how they kind of managed to kind of claw back some sort of significance because for for the past two years the main message of the election hasn't been about anything about peace or the Palestinians or human rights anything like that about two states it's all been about you know we've got to get rid of Netanyahu and that's you know still the you know the main messages for these parties at the moment so it makes it kind of difficult to talk about what the left really offers and the other, I guess, factor in all this is kind of the what's what's referred to as, you know, the Arab party. So, you know, Israeli, the Israeli Arab population, the population of Arab citizens is around 20 percent of the population. And Israel, the way that the politics is split, it's split very tribally. You have Haredi parties, you have Arab parties. There's a big taboo around going into coalition or cooperating in politics with the Arab parties. And that really kind of the left has to kind of really think about it stand on that because at the moment it's just there's very little prospect for the left to build a serious contender for the leadership without those seats from parties from Arab majority parties and then at the same time it's kind of you know those parties are, are always sidelined and not part of this creation of a vision of, of the left so there's a lot of soul searching for the left at the moment in fact Haaretz published a, a editorial today talking about you know the dangers of Meretz not passing the threshold and why the, the country needs this small left-wing party not to disappear. Of course, we've mostly spoken about this as though it were quote-unquote a normal election. So it's like the fourth election uh, in a few years. But it's a very, in many ways, it's a very atypical election where, particularly because of obviously the coronavirus crisis and the particular context of Israel having done so far fantastically well with the vaccine I think it's given over half of its population at least one dose of the vaccine. So that's way, way ahead of the rest of the world, as we've covered repeatedly on, on this podcast and at the New Statesman. And I know at the beginning of the campaign, Netanyahu was speaking about the vaccination campaign as something that would benefit him electorally. But that doesn't really seem to have panned out. And I was just wondering if you could talk about how the vaccine success has or hasn't affected politics in Israel and the campaign? Netanyahu, he's given, you know, a few, he's done a few campaign interviews recently, where he's presenting himself as the kind of the leader who has brought, you know, this incredible success to the country when it comes to vaccine. You know, he, he tells voters, all the, the entire world is, you know, watching and, you know, calling me and complimenting me on, on on what I've done here. And Israelis are kind of are aware of the fact that that, you know, the vaccine effort in, in Israel is particularly impressive and they're kind of far ahead. And yeah, you're right, you know, kind of last year when they were starting to talk about the elections possibly happening in March, there were reports that he could, that that's Netanyahu's party, wanted the elections in spring because of the vaccine rollout and also because of the economy opening up you know just two weeks now before the election everything's sort of opened up very quickly because people are kind of assuming that that's partly to do with the upcoming vote but if you look at the polls you know Netanyahu's party has been kind of hovering around 
29 pretty much the entire time. And there's a there was a poll just now, which basically seems to show that there's there's a deadlock that's going to happen pretty much that we know, you know, there's not going to necessarily be enough for each side again to form a coalition. And there was a really interesting poll last week or this week that found that something like 29% of Israelis think the election will yield a clear outcome on the question of who will be the next prime minister. So, you know, a lot of Israelis are kind of thinking, okay, yeah, there'll probably be another election anyway. So before we get on to that, First of all, why did Israel do so well here? What was its secret formula? Like, I understand that Netanyahu was very involved in the negotiations and Mm -hmm. that Israel moved quite fast. But what exactly did the country do so right? Because it is so far ahead of everyone else. What was the secret? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? There's lots of discussion about it. I think also Netanyahu, to his credit, took coronavirus very, very seriously, very quickly and kind of moved things very quickly early early on. There was footage of him, you know, face masks, not shaking hands with people because he was very aware of kind of coronavirus and the dangers of coronavirus. But I think there's something, there's a mixture of kind of some sort of a culture of the way that Israel gets things done, which has been pretty relevant, and also the way the health system is sort of set up. It's an insurance-based system, right? Yeah, it's an insurance-based system, and there are different kind of you know, medical kupot cholim, they're called in, in Hebrew, I can't think of the name in English, kind of medical groups. And they are, they work together, but they're separate. There isn't a kind of very big bureaucracy like there, there is, for example, in the UK. It's much more agile, much more, much easier to get stuff out to people. It's also a smaller country with a smaller population. But Israel kind of, you know, went out, did the negotiations, bought the doses and made it a big priority. And I think in Hebrew, they call it, you know, they talk about the, the vaccine operation as if it's, you know, a military operation. And there's some sort of an influence in the, in the way that Israel is kind of set up to respond militarily to stuff, I would say, that made it, you know, just kind of start and get stuff sort of done very, very quickly, which made a big difference. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just two dollars a week in America. Just one last question for me, then I think we'll go to our You Ask Us question. But the last one for me is, can Israel really imagine a post-Netanyahu period? Because he's so associated with the country's politics. And I understand that a lot of Israelis, even if they don't think he's you know, the perfect leader, probably vote for him because they think that he provides security and so forth. Like, is there a path to a post-Netanyahu Israel? And if not, why not? I mean, Netanyahu is obviously a very dominant figure and he's very good at kind of painting himself as irreplaceable and also a kind of an existential, if you get rid of me, it's an existential threat to the country, right? So he, this election, he's talking about, you know, this is a historic opportunity to bring in the biggest right wing government we've ever seen. But in the past, he said, you know, you've got to vote for me because the left is trying to dismantle the government of the right. He's very good at, at doing that kind of divide and rule stuff. I think for a lot of Israelis, it is really hard to imagine. You know, he's he's been in government for a really long time. When Gantz went into coalition with him and people felt very dis- kind of let down by him, a lot of the narrative was kind of, of course, you know, he he failed. Bibi is such a master politician and Gantz was new and, you know, and naive and nobody could, could rival Netanyahu. But there are enough people, I, um, you know, if you look at their maths, 
if there are enough people who are who say that they want to get rid of him, they want to challenge him with enough seats, at least in the polls, to get together and 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 form a coalition. So it is possible, but I think it it is difficult to move beyond such a dominant figure in the country's politics and one who's kind of you know so controlling. And you can see that with the vaccine program, he's really taken the credit for it as if it's his you know personal achievement. There's a really interesting story recently about um, Naftali Bennett, who's a politician on the right party called Yamina, who used to be Netanyahu's office chief of staff and, a, and, a, and an ally and now isn't an ally. And he he's polling on 11 and a half seats and he wants to, to be prime minister. His strategy is to hope that Netanyahu wins enough to need his seat to need Bennett's seat. And then what Bennett proposes to do is to go to the leaders of the parties who are leading the anti-BB camp. So that's Yair Lapid's Yashatid, New Hope, led by Gideon, Gideon Sal, who used to be in Likud, Avidor Lieberman with Israel Beitenu, and um, Mirav Michaeli in Labour. And to those, say to them, those are all basically centrist parties? Is no, that... no, no, no. Sal is quite on the right. Avidor Lieberman is on the right and Labour, Labour is a left and, party. And Lapid? Lapid's a centrist, a centre leader. Yeah. And, and his plan is to go to those parties and say, listen, if you don't make me the leader of a unity emergency government, I will go into government with Netanyahu, <laughs> which is an interesting, uh, an interesting strategy. So there are paths in if you kind of if you start adding up all the parties. But I guess ultimately you can watch the polls, you know, every day until election day. But we won't know until until that the morning of the 24th whether enough parties really have the numbers and whether they can overcome the egos to kind of form the coalition that would get rid of this guy. That seems a good note on which to move on to a segment which our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call. You ask us. Our listener question this week is, what has happened to the Labour Party and how has Israeli politics become so dominated by the right? Alona, do you want to attempt to answer? So the Labour Party has had gone through a kind of identity crisis, I guess, over the past however many years. Like I said before, that in 2015, the party, at that time it was called Zionist Union, or Zionist Camp, I think, and it was a, it was the party had united with Tsipi Livni, the former foreign minister, who almost won against Netanyahu and became prime minister, but didn't not so many years ago. And they won 24 seats then, and now you know, they're, they're polling on six and they're polling on six, three leaders later. So you can imagine there's a lot of instability there. The Labour Party was the tr- kind of the, the the dominant sort of ruling party, the party that established or the, its predecessor was the par- party that established the state. And now it's kind of lost its way. It doesn't quite know what it stands for. Its voters don't quite know what it stands for. And Merav Micheli, its new leader, is, is being, you know, she's speaking about far more kind of left-wing positions and is trying to kind of carve out a role for the party that's much clearer. One of the challenges is that the, that the Israeli electorate skews right, and it skews right if you look at the a younger demographic as well. So in theory, support on the right will increase over time because more young people in Israel are voting right than voting left, which is another kind of existential crisis for the left. What do you think, Ido? Because, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in Israeli politics, but before we recorded this episode, we were you and I were talking about merits, which seems to be an Israeli party that would probably correspond to the politics of many of our listeners. You know, what do you think about this? I think, by and large, Netanyahu's bet has paid off. So the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories has been ongoing since 
1967. And although under international law, and initially it was intended to be temporary, it's basically incre- increasingly obvious that it is permanent. It's a permanent state of affairs that Israel has no intention or inclination to to change. And so it moves in hundreds of thousands of settlers illegally to territory occupied in the West Bank and maintains a what, according to the UN, under international law, is an occupation over both the Gaza Strip, which is this kind of little strip of land disconnected from the West Bank, and the West Bank, which is a larger strip of land where there are several Israeli settlements where hundreds of thousands of Israeli civilians live, which is in violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. But anyway, all that to say that Netanyahu came came to power in 2009. When he came to power, he was forced by Obama to make a speech, a very famous speech at Bar-Ilan University when he committed to a two-state solution, which I don't think he had ever done before. But it became quite obvious at the time that he was not sincere about it. He was not actually going to try and implement a two-state solution, although Obama and John Kerry tried, Secretary of State at the the time tried. Politics at, at that time was very different. If you think about how different the Obama era seemed compared to the Trump era in terms of respect for international law and norms and the the kind of ethos governing global politics was obviously very different. But Netanyahu's bet was that he didn't need to concede to Obama and that eventually the prevailing winds of global politics would, would shift. And he got that when Donald Trump was elected. And you had this kind of rise of nationalist populism around the world, which incidentally tends to view Israel very, very positively and Netanyahu's own leadership very, very positively. And suddenly questions of occupation or self-determination of the Palestinian people became a lot less material. And that was rewarded by Trump in that he moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, going against several decades of U.S. policy. He recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, so a strip of land internationally recognized as, as Syrian territory, and so on. And so basically, his, his bet paid off. And as a result, the left kind of, I think, lost its raison d'etre and its, its argument, because if you don't need to give up this land for, for the sake of the international community, no, one, no one's really forcing you to do it, then a large part of the, not all of them, but a large part of the kind of self-interested arguments for a two-state solution disappear. And I think that's part of the story of what happened. I'm interested to know if, if you think that sounds right, Alona. That's really interesting. I would, I would add to that that I think there's a kind of, within Israeli society, and it's not necessarily because of Bibi having kind of won, not exactly won that argument, but like you said, kind of played that long game and it kind of worked out for him because ultimately he was joined by people like Trump and Orban who think he's completely fine as a leader. In fact, think he's on the right page. But I think Israelis have become kind of, you know, if you look at at recent, recent elections, nobody really talks about the issue of the occupation or the conflict. It's just, it's not an election issue. And most Israelis kind of, it's just kind of there. They're not like very much ideologically on, on the right or very kind of far on the left where they're really aware of this stuff. It's just sort of part of a status quo that they, they might not even think about that much. And it's just, you know, none of the parties have kind of managed to get voters put out a vision that's related to peace that gets voters excited and that's partly a kind of 
laziness of vision on the part of politicians, right? That they're not coming up with something better for a country that's still in existential crisis and, and can't, you know, it's not a sustainable future for Israel to continue sort of ignoring that enormous elephant in the room. But yeah, I think I think that the, the part of the problem for the left is that they're, where is the left? Is that the left is basically accepting, like you said, a kind of permanent occupation, unless it, you identify as quite far on the left and, you, you know, you, you're, you're very um, obviously against it. So where does that, what does left even mean in that context, right? So on that, can I ask you both one final question, which is Anshul Pfeffer, the economist's Israel correspondent, who also occasionally writes for the New Statesman, wrote for us last year that he thought that the Palestinian cause was perilously close to being entirely lost. Very, very big picture question this, but is there still a chance for the two-state solution or is that just dead? Alona, do you want to just share some thoughts on that not exactly small question? Anshul's right. It is perilously close to being to being lost. There's still, when you look at kind of, when you look at polling, more Israelis and Palestinians prefer a two-state solution to other potential solutions, such as one state that's basically an apartheid state where, you know, there, there isn't equal rights for all citizens or one state where there are equal rights for all citizens. So I think in that sense, it's not completely lost. But, you know, you don't mention the, the 2009 Baliland speech. That's a really long time ago. Nothing has happened since then, really, to advance the two-state solution. And certainly with Bibi in power, there's no way that anything will really happen to move it forward. I think that, you know, the Biden administration has has said that it still believes in the two-state solution to the extent which America can still, after what's happened with Trump and, you know, things like the Golan, the Golan Heights sort of recognition or moving the embassy to Jerusalem, other stuff that Ido mentioned, the extent that, that America can still be an honest broker in that, you know, there's still some sort of an impetus to follow that. But it will be, be interesting to see whether that's, whether there's any kind of appetite kind of from the international community to do it. And of course, there's this other debate happening at the same time around whether is there already, there was a really interesting report that came out um, from an Israeli human rights group this year basically saying, you know, we have to take all of the Palestinian territories, so Gaza, all the bits of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Israel as one place. And then you have to ask yourself whether there's actually, you know, a kind of apartheid committed in these in this territory because you've got such different rights for Israelis and Palestinians. So there are kind of lots of different debates happening at the moment. But I think if you kind of ask Israelis and Palestinians, you know, the Palestinians still do want a state of their own. I wouldn't say it's completely, completely lost. Just very briefly, I mean, the reason that the two-state solution emerged as an idea, as a potential solution to the conflict, was because from a self-interested Israeli perspective, you have a triangle. On each end of the triangle, you have three things. You have territory, democracy, and a Jewish identity. And you can have two or three. It is mathematically impossible to have all three. And so you have to, at some point, you have to abandon one of them, right? You can have... You can have democracy and a Jewish identity, which means giving up the West Bank and its Palestinian population. Because, Or you can have democracy and the whole territory, but at that point you lose the Jewish identity because more or less 50% of the population in the state is Palestinian. And quite rightly, they wouldn't accept to live under a Jewish state and they wouldn't vote for it. Why, why should they? Or you can have the territory and the Jewish identity, but it means you abandon the democracy because you can't let the Palestinians vote to dissolve your state. And 
that calculus, I mean, the, the politics has changed in the time in between the first enunciation of the two-state solution, but the fundamental calculus has not changed and will not change until some sort of solution is reached. Ultimately, you can have two of three, you cannot have three of three. And Israel increasingly seems to have decided that it wants the territory and the Jewish identity, but not the democracy in terms of the whole territory that alone has talked about and that, for instance, the Bid Salem report highlighted. But the fundamental calculus has not changed. And on top of that, I guess nobody, you know, nobody's really sitting and, and thinking it through very, very clearly or making it a priority either. So it's just kind of sitting there in the background, not being dealt with. And on that note, that feels like a good, a good way to move on to our last segment, which is what we'll be looking forward to in the week ahead. Alona, do you have a event in global politics that you'll be keeping an eye out for? Yeah, so it's not exactly something that I'm looking forward to, but there's the story of um, Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe, who's uh, the jailed British Iranian mother who was five years in, in an Iranian prison, has been released to house arrest, and she's meant to be facing going back to court on Sunday again. There's obviously been lots of um, lots of pressure to, for her to be kind of released and allowed to kind of go back home. I guess that's, a, that's an important story to watch. Like, will she, be, will she finally be able to, to go home or not? What will happen on this trial on Sunday? Jeremy, what will you be looking forward to? I think I'll just go with what I said before, which is that I'll be paying attention to the German state elections this coming Sunday, the 14th of March in Rheinland-Pfalz and Baden-Württemberg. And what about you, Ido? It's not very cheerful, but depending on how you count the 15th or the 16th or the 17th of March in 2011 was the beginning of the Syrian uprising, which would eventually turn into a decade of civil war. And that's a very bleak but very meaningful anniversary that I will be looking out for. So I mean Syria, we don't we don't tend to talk about it so much, but it's a country that has been utterly, utterly destroyed. It's in ruins. The estimate is that it would cost about $250 billion to rebuild, which is about four times Syria's pre-war GDP and I think about 10 times the size of its economy today. 50% of the population is displaced, half of that outside of Syria itself. 20 million Syrians out of 22 million total are in need of humanitarian assistance, the UN, the UN believes, and half of hospitals have been destroyed. 70% of Syrians do not have access to clean water. I mean, it's been a decade of living hell for, for the country and for, for the Syrian people. And so I'll be marking, marking that anniversary and seeing how Syrians across the world, probably not in Syria itself, but those who fled Assad and still believe that eventually Syria can be a democratic and just country will be marking it. And it's worth noting that Ido recently wrote a great piece for the New Statesman on the quest for justice pursued by victims of Syrian war crimes in currently in Europe against members of the regime. And, you know, a lot of us forget that the Syrian war even is still going on, let alone the fact that many of its victims are now in, in, in Europe. And it's a, a fascinating read, and we'll put it on the page for this episode of the podcast. But with that, we'd like to say a big thank you to Alona Ferber, the special projects editor for The New Statesman, for that fascinating conversation. I have to say, I, I am left with more questions than answers, but in the best possible sense of the term. I'm, I'm not an expert on Israeli politics, but the more you dig into it, the more uncertainties and the more complexities there are. And I have to say, I felt like this was a very good explanation of some of those. 
Well, it's also one of those things that once you start paying attention, it becomes quite addictive. So I would warn you about that. Okay, absolutely. Anyway, thank you so much, Elena. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. You can also subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.